0: This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. city of Hamilton uh, had a, a rather robust discussion yesterday, city council, to do with what was going to be happening at the waterfalls. More specifically, Albion Falls, which seems to be the focal point for a lot of the, the misdeeds and the uh, crazy things that have been going on for the last well little while. And sadly, a couple of fatalities involved in this, too. So the city has uh, developed a, uh, a more aggressive policy on this. Tom Jackson is the city council for Ward 6 up on the East Mountain, and of course uh, Albion Falls is right in that area. He joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about the discussion and what's going to be happening going forward. Tom, how are you doing this morning?
1: Bill, I appreciate the opportunity to be back on your show to update your listeners. Thank well, you.
0: Well, when we did talk a little while ago, you did say that there was going to be an upcoming meeting and you wanted to hash this out with staff. So what have, what have you guys talked about and what have you decided?
1: So, Bill, what occurred basically yesterday, uh, as I had promised you, Bill, and thanks for the uh, week to allow this uh, informative update to occur before my public works colleagues just to ensure that measures taken to date and next stages of uh, measures that the Albion Falls Focus Team had suggested were going to be supported by my colleagues. Yesterday was basically uh, an update to them to tell them about. The existing six-foot uh, black chain-link fence that has started in the north parking lot where the lookout platforms are, that have gone around to along Mountain Brow Boulevard where there's one little lookout area there at the top of the falls, finishing the last two sides of that, then going above where those concrete steps are, and then also adding one more piece going along over to what's dubbed uh, Lover's Leap. So I we informed them about those measures taken to date. We also obviously wanted to inform them about uh, signs, that uh, pictorial-type signs, similar to what the Conservation Authority uses, about uh, stay off uh, this part of the trail, uh, be careful not to go uh, to edge of cliffs, those type of pictorial signs. And more importantly, in terms of more restrictive enforcement signs, I wanted to ensure I got the blessing. Uh, I think the the uh, staff and I, and, and led by our parks manager, Cara Bunn, on behalf of the team, we wanted to ensure that if we're going to go down a more restrictive uh, enforcement route, that uh, we had a committee on side with it. And Bill, I'll tell you, I was very pleased with—I'll call it—a reaffirmation by committee unanimously yesterday of measures taken to date, uh, further measures to come with the no trespassing. In fact, some of my colleagues were wanting to go even quicker and more aggressively uh, than I. than the team and I were, you know, trying to take a, a measured, uh, you know, uh, phased approach. But that's okay. We're all in agreement that this needs to be done, unfortunately. And, quite frankly, Bill, we also um, filled them in on some longer-term plans, which is possible, you know, through, uh, through capital funding, that we could build a proper, safe uh, stairway, possibly, from the south side of the Falls off Mud Street down to the base of the Falls. Maybe another lookout platform around where Lover's Leap is, which would be directly closer to the Falls. So, Bill, overall, to summarize... I was extremely pleased and encouraged by the fact that not only have we done the right things according to Public Works Committee yesterday, but they uh, strongly supported the additional restrictive measures to come.
0: Let's talk about the enforcement end of this, because you're right, Tom. I mean, the the stuff at the Conservation Authority has been in play for some time, and by and large, from what I've been told, the people obey the signs. Yeah, you know what? It would be silly to walk over to the edge of that cliff. Mm -hmm. Not so much at the falls for some reason. Uh, and, 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 and therein lies the problem. I mean, the fencing has been up there. people are breaking the fence down they 're hopping over the fence, and yeah, some of them are trying to get to the bottom. Some of them just want to get to the edge of the cliff and, and uh, but you 've seen the feedback that and i 've heard of it so in the last couple of days too. Well, this is nature, and the city has no business trying to keep us from doing that. How do you protect people from themselves from doing these sorts of things? Are we going to have bylaw officers just basically walking around that area on a daily basis? How's this going to look?
1: So, Bill, we need to obviously uh, stem the tide of the unfortunate increasing number of incidents over the last two, three, four years that have occurred at our waterfalls. And again, site-specific right now, the focus being Albion Falls and The last, uh, this year and last year, a couple of the uh, ultimate tragedies, sadly. So, um, we're um, the, once the no trespassing signs go up, uh, fines range in both the bylaw, municipal law enforcement under the parks bylaw can enforce police then can enforce under the uh, no trespassing act i mean it could be a range of tickets anywhere from 65 dollars minimum right up to maximum ten thousand dollars there's a wide range of violations that fall in that category the experts in law enforcement bylaw police know it a, a lot better than i do but this with the signs up finally would give them that authority and uh, i'm sure bill once the signs go up i'm hoping that the signs alone Will, for those that want to be risk takers, I'm hoping, fingers crossed, there'll be a strong deterrent, but if it's not, we will have visible officers and bylaw people present in the area, especially on the uh, popular weekends, even as warnings, even stopping people and making sure that if they go past a certain point with the new black chain link fencing and stay on the main trail, if they don't, that they could, uh, there could be consequences.
0: But is there a cost to this? I mean, are you going to have to hire extra people? Because I know there's a concern, and the, because you guys talked about during the budget sessions this year, Tom, about, uh, about the cost of bylaw enforcement, not just to do with the waterfalls, but all over the city.
1: So, Bill, obviously, from a policing standpoint and as a former member of the police board years ago, I get the fact that they have a priority system. Obviously, uh, an assault, a bank robbery, obviously, would take great precedence over uh, trespassing at at, uh, Nature and an Albion Falls type of area. But we are going to consult with police. Actually, Councillor Ferguson was uh, chairing our Public Works Committee meeting. You know the uh, other hat that he wears with the Police Services Board. He was more than supportive of this. Director of Municipal Law, Ken Leenders was there. And yes, you're right, Bill, limited resources, priorities elsewhere in the city. But however, if we need to reallocate, even to get us through this summer, once the signs are up and provide a strong, powerful message, folks, please, please enjoy this panoramic area, but enjoy it safely. Stay on the main trail. So reallocation of resources this summer bill would be needed, and I think we'll find a way to do that.
0: All right, still on the enforcement kick, though, there's a, a concern about uh, Albion Falls, obviously, and that seems to be the focal point for a lot of this discussion. But it's not the only area where this is going on. And I know that during the meeting yesterday, uh, Stony Creek Councillor Doug Conley also brought up about uh, what was going on mm-hmm. in his area, of course, uh, over by the Devil's Punchbowl. Does, uh, does what you talked about yesterday extend to these other waterfall areas as well?
1: Well, I guess right now, uh, Bill, all the shining light is on the East Mountain area and the gorgeous Albion Falls.
0: For all the wrong reasons.
1: Yeah, well, again, though, Bill, you know, I want to say, and by the way, I can't thank your listeners and the feedback in the community enough. I want to get to that in a minute from some of the stakeholders who also have reaffirmed we're on the right path. But I want to reaffirm, Bill, as I finished yesterday in my speech at committee, on a positive note, the overwhelming number of visitors to the falls area, when you look at the thousands of people on a weekend and the tiny number that are in a, in the misadventure category, when you look at it proportionally, it still is a tiny, small amount. But having said that, obviously the misadventures have increased and that's why we're dealing with it, Bill. I want to say for the stakeholders and people like your listeners, Bill, its uh, I'll call it through adversity, Bill, that there seems to be opportunity if we can seize it and a group like the escarpment project that was founded by greg lenko l-e-n-k-o six years ago now get a load of this i met with greg in advance of the public works meeting i reached out to him he has an army every year bill at the end of april close to seven eight hundred volunteers they go to various waterfalls in the area including my albion buttermilk area they hand out pamphlets they hand out instructions to the volunteers what gear to wear um, uh, where to go where not to go these are people that are volunteering to pick up illegally dumped material at the bottom of the falls broken toilets mattresses all the garbage that sadly some renegades in our community continue to do to these beautiful areas he's never had a serious incident with any of his volunteers of course he takes out his proper insurance over six years he came up with some ideas and basically in speaking to him the other day, Bill, he he was reaffirming some of the measures we've taken to date. He, uh, he said uh, uh, of anything, the fencing is good, although he would have preferred a vertical type fencing, which is along where the local platforms are versus the chain link. But having said that, he believes in the shock signs as well, showing the number of deaths and rescues over a period of time um he's also said uh, we should display a map showing where visitors can and cannot go we're going to be doing that a menu type of map coming up soon to be installed Bill, and also in the long term he fully supports some kind of what he called like a a zip line uh some kind of a passageway across each section of the falls a proper staircase down another lookout platform or two i'm not saying it was universally every single item that we agreed on but overall the uh the agenda moving forward and what we've done up to now even a volunteer and a guy who heads an 800 member club uh, said that, you know, overall, we had to do something, Bill, and with the Conservation Authority's support and the Bruce Trail, I, I'm, I'm pleased in the direction we're going overall.
0: Well, I'm glad you had that discussion because I've heard similar feedback from, from our listeners after you and I have had discussions on the air, Tom, and, and some of them have talked about, uh, I, I don't want to use the term commercializing, but taking better advantage of this, and you you of course know that even in Niagara Falls, they have a zip line that goes over near the falls, and, and in other natural areas, I mean, up in Blue Mountain of course, you ski there in the winter, but in the summer time they've got their sort of activities around the mountaintops as well. And why not consider something like that? Now, I know that's not a city initiative, Mm -hmm. but it's maybe a call out to the private sector to say, hey, if you guys want to have any ideas about this, you want to sit down and talk about this, I think it's worth exploring.
1: Absolutely. And uh, And for those that want
0: to, you know, get their thrills instead of just looking at the falls and do something, well, give them the thrills instead of standing at the edge of a cliff.
1: Exactly. Exactly, Bill. And uh, listen, some suggestions have come... It's amazing. My office has, over the last couple of months, just been flooded with, uh, and overall, uh, people who want to constructively contribute, which I'm I'm grateful for. Uh, I've had suggestions as much as, uh, Tom, what's wrong with people being charged a, a toonie for parking in the three main parking lots around Albion Falls that would generate some income that you could use to enhance the area of Albion Falls? Things like that. So some good suggestions have come forward, Bill. And uh, by the way, also another suggestion was Uh, You know where Mountain Brow Boulevard and Mud Street meet Mm -hmm. right at the bottom there at that bend, right across from Arbor Road. A suggestion came forward to put a pedestrian light there because, fingers crossed, we've been, I guess, very lucky and fortunate up to now, given how cars can zip down from Pritchard Road, zip up from Ridge Road to that point. And so I've asked the traffic department to quickly look at the feasibility of uh, putting a pedestrian light there for people to cross over from the parking lot.
0: The overwhelming majority of people that have suggestions, though, Tom, have told me that they want to see uh, uh, some sort of a staircase all the way down to the bottom of the falls here. Now, Dan McKinnon from Public Works was on the program the other day, and I asked him about that. And he guesstimated, because obviously, I mean, you know, these are just, you know, making numbers on the back of an envelope right now. But he's talking about almost a million bucks, uh, give or take to a project like that. Uh, is, is that something that you can handle in a capital budget? I mean, I know that you get money every year. Uh, you know, the, some of the councillors, the inner city councillors get money every year uh, that they look at doing projects like that. Why not allocating some of that money towards a project like that?
1: So, Bill, that's uh, that's good brainstorming, but I'm going to hearken back, Bill, to uh, 12, 13 years ago. I referenced it last time I was on your show, and I'll do it again. Uh, when you and former Councillor Murray Ferguson and myself, through the Hamilton Future Fund, we applied for a $500,000 grant under the legacy component, and I was so thrilled the Future Fund recommended unanimously to Council, which ratified it, the half a million dollars to build those two lookout platforms. That's the right.
0: I remember line. that, yeah.
1: So that's 500000 So if you fast-forward 12 years, obviously the cost to do something even greater and properly and carefully, uh, uh, like a hand-railed staircase, uh, a pathway down to a platform point near the bottom of the falls, I could see where that number could be a million dollars. So I've instructed uh, staff from the Albion Falls focus team, and I mentioned it yesterday at Public Works Committee, nobody put up any red flags from my committee colleagues to say, well, no, Tom, that's a little too rich for our thinking. Don't even go down that road. Everybody said, look, long-term, let's let's at least look at the feasibility of that. So I've instructed staff, Kara Bunn, our parks manager, we're going to be putting in before the fall deadline to the Hamilton Future Fund. We'll put in some preliminary plans, Bill, for a, a proper staircase, and uh, see what the Future Fund thinks.
0: I, I just want to get—I mean, it's Friday. I just want to get through another w- a weekend without a, a story of a rope rescue or, or God forbid, another tragedy in these things. I mean, you know, common sense has to rule the day here, and it hasn't so far. But I mean, if a city can do something to try to mitigate some of this impact, I think—I think it behooves them to to move forward on something like this.
1: Well, Bill, I'll tell you, a number of your listeners, um, I've also had some people who I, I've had a large number of people who wanted some punitive measures a long time ago. And I, some of the adjectives that uh, some of my constituents have used for people who have put themselves in a risk dangerous position who should have known better, I, I, I won't repeat some of the No, I've, I've
0: heard them all too.
1: So all I'm going to say is that um, I have reluctantly gone down a route here where it looks like I've had to take additional physical, structural measures, additional signage, strong, powerful message signage, that until we can provide a safer opportunity, it's obvious to me now, Bill, and talking to guys like Greg Lenko and through the Bruce Trail Association, it's obvious that there's an excitement in the air about our city. There's an excitement in the air of people that see the beauty and majesty of some place like Albion Falls. And the lookout platforms on the north side, well you know Tom that's great for a camera picture, but boy is that still hundreds of feet away Tom and I'd like to get a little closer to the to the water itself so bill I'm committed to providing and looking at the feasibility of that opportunity long term. I just need a good six months to a year year and a half to see what we can do to it even initiate some money for a design and a study for that.
0: Well, we'll have that discussion once you get some numbers, and we can talk about some hard and fast numbers and where it's going. Tom, thanks so much for the uh, work you and your staff have done on this, and we'll stay in touch. And uh, here's uh, hoping that we have a safe weekend up there.
1: Bill, I appreciate so much your interest on this subject, too. Thank you. Take care.
0: That's uh, Councilor Tom Jackson, of course, Ward 6 up in the East Mountain, uh, where Albion Falls is. And, yeah, if you're going out there, do I need to say be careful, really? Or how about be smart? Maybe that's even more appropriate.
1: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show,
0: weekdays from 9
2: to noon on AM 900 CHML.
0: Listen, there's an awful lot of buzz still going on, of course, about the Omar Khadr uh, deal that was struck and announced, of course, uh, I guess about a week or so ago. Uh, A lot of pushback against the prime minister, uh, a lot of pushback uh, on the media side on this thing, and of course, certainly on social media and and without getting into the minutia about cotter and being a, a a a boy soldier and and the charges etc there's the other element about how this whole issue was is handled and and that's really how the government is going to be graded how any government i guess gets graded is is the the methodology that they use and how they get their message out there and uh, there's some concern i think about actually how the federal government handled this Joining us to talk about this is Elise Freeman, of course. Elise is a public relations consultant, rather, with with Huffington Post, and joins us here on the Bill Keller Show. Elissa, how are you doing today?
2: I'm doing fine, Bill. Thank you for having me on.
0: Well, this is this is an important thing, and I think you know there are so many different angles that we can take to this, and there are still some people that want to debate about Cotter, whether he should have been charged about Guantanamo, et cetera, et cetera. But but I want to focus about the government themselves and how they did this, Uh, and I think there's some legitimate concerns about the process, and that's always I think a concern to us when we look at the elected officials and say, okay, it's not just are they doing their job, but how are they doing their job? How would, you, how would you rate what the government did, what the Trudeau government did, and how they handled this issue?
2: You know, it's hard to give it a rating, but I certainly do have some opinions on it. You know, a lot of people think, well, how did this deal happen in the first place, and why did this deal happen in the first place? From a communications perspective, we were sort of, as a, as a Canadian, we were sort of kept in the dark regarding the whole thing. Um, you know, at first we found about it out about it quite suddenly, and then where was Trudeau during all this? Well, he hopped on a plane to Ireland where the press was fawning all over him. So it seems to be the repul- the uh, liberal strategy that if there's a problem at home, put the PM on a plane and get him out of dodge. Um that was the first thing. The second thing is is that there was not a lot of messaging that came through about it. So the public heard that there was $10.5 million. And then when questioned, all Trudeau would say is, this is what we had to do. There were human rights abuses, and this is the financial reward that we gave. And there was literally nothing else said. And then something interesting happened. A poll came out. And what that poll said was even among liberals, the liberal base was upset with, the, uh, with this judgment. So now you see it as uh, being now the Liberals are backpedaling a little bit and starting to feed the public uh, a little bit more information, saying that, well, you know what, if there had been a trial, it would have cost us $40 $40 million, and if this had happened, and if that had happened. None of those scenarios or none of those messages were put out uh, to begin with. So, you know, from a public relations, from a communications perspective, that is having a lot of wheels,
0: and and therein lies the problem, as far as I'm concerned, as well, because uh, because I, I had that same feeling. I, I just thought. First of all, and you're right, I mean, politicians tend to do that. I mean, you know, Donald Trump's feeling the heat right now about his son and everything, so boom, off to Paris, off they go, uh, try to change the channel. And and I know that the G20 had been scheduled for quite some time, but the timing, I I, I think, is so key to this of And from that standpoint, this did not just fall onto their lap. They knew it was going to happen. They knew there was going to be an announcement imminent. Would the the better tact would have been for the prime minister to simply say, "Look, wait till I get back, and then we'll do this and we'll handle this." I, I'm I'm kind of busy with this stuff right now. This can wait till Monday or Tuesday instead of simply letting it quote unquote leak and and let everybody kind of run wild with it before all the the facts are out there.
2: Well, you know, here's the thing. Hindsight, just, I'm
0: great at hindsight, by the way. Most yeah, of us yeah, are.
2: We all are. <laughs> twenty twenty hindsight, yeah. right? So, you know, here's the thing. This is all very, very orchestrated. So, you know, some people say that ideologically, you know, Trudeau sort of led this, and this is where it ended up, and the communications people were left to sort of clean it up. Um, You know, yes, what you say would have been the way that we as Canadians would have preferred to hear about this. But honestly, knowing they probably had an inkling of the reaction that would come as a result, then, then you sort of take this strategy where, you know, it leaks. He's not in the country. Do a deflection strategy. Don't look, don't look at this, but look over here, look over here. So that's politics. Bill, that is politics. And that's what they do is sort of like take the path of least resistance. Do what you can to mitigate the anger. And if it still continues to play, then go to Plan B.
0: But they didn't do anything to mitigate the anger, did they? Well, no. And, and, until and, they and got and, the you know pushback. What, the
2: other thing, too, is is that when Cotter did do the interview with Rosemary Barton, and it was a lengthy interview, and he stood outside his house on the lawn mm-hmm. and let her ask any questions she wanted, here's the one thing that I think really angered Canadians, is that he showed no empathy, nor did, did he say he was sorry. So, you know, he just seemed very uh, monotone. Um, his While his answers uh, didn't sound rehearsed to me from a communications um, pro perspective, they did not have an inkling of empathy to them. And because as Canadians, especially, you know, everybody jokes, oh, you know, what a Canadian say, sorry, sorry, sorry. But as Canadians, I think that we kind of expected that.
0: Well, and I think we maybe expected it from the prime minister as well. I mean, you know, his empathy, his, uh, hey, it, it bothers me too, didn't come till yesterday.
2: Well, and that's because they totally read public opinion wrong. And, and you know, when you are in a crisis communications, um, when you're handling crisis communications and you're right in the thick of it, you know, best practice says, you know, say the least amount that you can get away with because the more you say, the more people will pick apart. It's the same way as, let's say, somebody writes a letter of complaint to an organization you're working for, and they go on and on why they're complaining. Well, should you choose to address each and every one of those complaints, you're going to get into a situation of pen palism. It'll just go back and forth, and they'll pick on everything you said. So by offering the absolute least amount that he could say or felt that he could get away with at the time, that was the strategy they stuck to. And Trudeau's pretty good on staying on message. He doesn't really get reeled in no, very often no, at that,
0: all. That, That's obviously one of his strengths. But do you think they underestimated the pushback they were going to get?
2: You know what? It's hard to say. He's got some pretty smart people surrounding him. So I don't think that they underestimated it. I think that they did have sort of a plan A and plan B. And you always do in crisis. You always do. Plan A is say this. If push, say that. They got pushed. And not only did they get pushed, I mean, it just was a social media reaction. I don't think that they would have come out with any more messaging just based on social media reaction. I think that the the poll really drove them to go to Plan B, where Canadians it's Canadians expected to hear more, and they had to give it to them.
0: Here's the thing that that I think a lot of Canadians are wondering about, and it guess I think all the way back to process here, Alyssa.
2: Yeah,
0: uh, you've been involved in a lot of these things, and when somebody calls in and says, "Listen, Alyssa, we got a, we got a big one here. This is going to be a tough call." Uh, and this is all behind closed doors, you know, and, and the the big heads are all in there and they're trying to come to some sort of a strategy. You've got to figure that before you open those doors and everybody leaves that meeting, they've covered every one of the bases. Okay, what kind of reaction are we going to get? How are we going to respond to it? What's the worst case scenario just in case that happens and how are we going to deal with it? Or even more importantly, how can we mitigate that worst case scenario? And I don't know that they had that part of that discussion.
2: I You know what? Because if they're be smart honest. people, I'd, I agree I'd with you. Really they would be surprised. Yeah. I'd be really surprised. There are some mar- some very smart people in there. There are a lot of people who worked in Kathleen Wynne's office that, you know, went down the 401 and went to Ottawa to work in Trudeau's office. Um, these people know communications. They know what's going on. And I think that they had to come to a very, very difficult decision. And that decision, well, first of all, in any of these, in any of these things, you know, you have to tell the truth. You can't hide behind anything. So, you know, my advice is always, you know, the truth will set you free. Once you start weaving a a web of lies, then that's when you start to get yourself into trouble and you start backpedaling. So they did tell the truth, like absolutely, but they didn't tell the whole truth. They told as much as they thought they could get away with.
0: It's, it's like that line from that Jack Nicholson movie with Diane Keaton. What's it called? As good as it gets us. I forget. Anyway, you know, everything I've told you has been some version of the truth. That's one of the lines that Nicholson used in that movie. Yes. And that, that seemed to be what we were getting here. It was a version of the truth, but it wasn't the whole truth and nothing but.
2: Well, you know, the other issue is this, Bill, is that, you know, some PR professionals have said, you know, Canadians have short memories in two years' time, and this is not going to hamper Trudeau. So he's going to take his licks now and then hope in two years, you know, things are better and they can mitigate this. You know, I'm not so sure. I I would have to say that if there's anything that the conservatives are really good at, their ad machine is, you know, second to none. You know, look what they did to Michael Ignatieff. You know, here he came in, and this was a liberal Great White Hope, and they basically said, this guy is a visitor, he's really an American, and he's not for us. And they take the simplest of all messages, the simplest, most negative message that will resonate with the average Canadian. And based on that, that's what they'll hammer away with. Now, we are far away from election time, and, you know, it's really hard to keep up a narrative for two years, and you know what it's like when you have an election that goes on for months and months. So, but the thing about it is this, is that there are other people driving this narrative. There's uh, Spears's widow who's driving this narrative. Mm-hmm. There's her lawyers that are driving this narrative. Um, and, and then, you know, there's opposition the oppo- themselves, the NDP and the Conservatives themselves that are driving this narrative. So it will kind of be interesting to see that if it does die out, that if Canadians do have a, um, a short memory. But, you know, the way the world is, is going right now, I think that any opposition to this will take any narrative they can that comes from global politics and put the Canadian-slash-Cotter spin on it and keep this alive.
0: Well, the, the other thing I think comes into play here is the dynamic that, and, and I guess we're responsible for this, that we as voters and as Canadians do, is uh, when elections come at any level, and we will going you know, to talk about the federal election since that's a couple of years away. Uh, you and I, as average Canadians, we don't often talk about policy. We don't get into the minutiae of policy. Uh, Yet politicians think that we do what we usually base our vote on and, and our feeling about those people on is their character, and and that's what opposition, whether you're a liberal, conservative, NDP, whatever it is, you notice that right now with campaign ads or attack ads, they're attacking character, not policy.
2: Right, because you know, and and you say people don't, the average person doesn't understand policy. I mean, policy is what makes the government go round, quite honestly, and and that's how it runs, but. People don't care about policy. They don't care about how many levels. They don't care about all the committees. They don't care about any of that. All they care about is the outcome and how it affects them. So, yes, character will play a big part of this, and I think that we will start to see, you know, the liberal machine is now going to start thinking, okay, we've got to have a distraction strategy. We're going to have to put Trudeau in a better light. How are we going to do this? What is our deflection? How can we make people look over here and forget about what's going on right now? And trust me, that is... In addition to mitigating what's going on right now, that's exactly what they're thinking.
0: And I know there's all sorts of, uh, of ancillary issues here. You know, somebody's saying there's racist overtones, some of the, this is going on. Well, and the opposition's going to cling to that. They may not even like it, they may not agree with it, but they're going to play to it for their political advantage.
2: Well, you know, this is it. And like I say, you know, <laughs> you know a couple years is a long time to keep a narrative kicking around. So we'll see. We'll see. You know, people say Canadians have a short memory, but this is a story that has... How long has this story been around? Honestly? How long have we been reading about this in our newspapers? How long have we been hearing about it on various media? A long time. Ever
0: since he got to Gitmo.
2: Exactly. And it hasn't moved off the front page or within the front section at all.
0: And it's going to continue. I mean, he's living right here. Uh, You know, I mean, I know the Urar case uh, about 10 years ago when that settlement was made. It uh, was stuck around for quite some time and, and they're saying, well, yeah, that seemed to fade. Well, it only faded because the Cotter thing superseded it.
2: Well, it something worse superseded it. So if something worse supersedes that, that's what the liberals can hope for. You know, you know there, there are things that happen sometimes in the media that just happen and take and move one issue off and another issue on. And, you know, you, that's a strategy, too. You know, you can hope that something else happens. So, you know, but that happens organically. Um, if it doesn't happen organically, you kind of have to manufacture it.
0: Let me ask you something. We're going to finish our conversation now. In about 15 minutes, the Prime Minister is going to call you, theoretically, and say, Alyssa, I just heard you talking with Kelly. Uh, I got a little dirt on me about this thing. How am I going to handle this? How do, I, how do I get it off, and how do I move forward here?
2: I would say you need to be totally upfront with Canadians. Um, your messaging is coming out now. You have to be... Uh, You have to be a bit more articulate about it and that you also, you know, the the other thing that, you know, I was talking today before we, we, I came on the radio with whom I consider average Canadians and they were saying, you know what, even the prime minister didn't say he was sorry. And I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. Because we're all here thinking, you know, Cotter just took the money and did he say sorry? No, but he felt that his, you know, his human rights were abused. So it's almost like, you know what, Mr. Prime Minister, you need to say you're sorry. And probably the reason he's not saying he's sorry, because that admits some sort of wrongdoing or some sort of guilt. But all I would say to him is, you know, you need to ride this out. You need to be a bit more upfront as opposed to, you know, letting uh, details drip, drip, drip. And then you've got the Canadian got to get the Canadian people thinking about something else.
0: Which is going to be interesting to see how that happens, especially in summertime where people aren't really focusing on, on issues, et cetera, like that.
2: And you but- know what? That is a great point. To release this in the summer, like, I know from a media perspective when we're looking at audience numbers, you have like a 20 to 25% drop. Yeah. Trust me people are thinking about The Liberals are thinking about that, too.
0: And I know, to go back to that closed-door meeting that we referenced a couple of minutes ago here in the conversation, you know darn well they said, okay, the, the opposition parties are going to roast us on this. And I think they figured, okay, fine, we can handle that. But I think what really got them, and, and really probably got their attention, was, as you say, the average Canadian. The, uh, the, this was the conversation around the Tim Hortons stores over, all around the country over the last seven days. That bothers them, and it should.
2: And it just wasn't what you know, conserv- conservatives were thinking. Oh, I'm so sorry.
0: Somebody's at the door. They
2: are. <laughs> but it was what their own home base was was thinking. And with that, Bill, I better ring off.
0: You better go get the, find out what's going on there. Alyssa, <laughs> always will. a pleasure. Thanks so much for this.
2: Okay, bye-bye.
0: Take care. Alyssa Freeman and her dog. Uh, Alyssa, of course, a public relations consultant and uh, working in... You can read her stuff on the Huffington Post, too. There's always some insightful uh, stuff from her, Alyssa, as you just heard.
2: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon
1: on AM 900
2: CHML.
0: Watch watched a football game last night? Uh, Winnipeg and uh, the Toronto Argonauts? The CFL fan Karen Coldy was watching it. Uh, she's from Winnipeg, big Blue Bomber fan. Thought she had won a million dollars. If you watch the broadcasts, uh, of course... They've got this uh, contest with one of the supermarkets where if there were two touchdowns run back in the, in the game, you, somebody wins. They draw the name and it's, okay, Bill Kelly, this is your game. And if they do this, well, she was the one. Uh, and she was oh so close. It it almost happened when uh, Toronto Oregon Martise Jackson ran back a kickoff for a touchdown against the Bombers. Thought she'd won the million bucks from the Safeway Sobeys million dollar uh, contest. However,. There was a flag on the play. How Tiger Cat fans remember the flags on the play. Remember at Speedy Banks and the Grey Cup a couple of years ago. A flag on the play. The touchdown gets called back. She doesn't get the money. She's uh, she's kind of ticked about that. Uh, was it a bad call? Are there, are there times when maybe a, a no call is better than a bad call? And of course, this brings the referee focus on it once again into the CFL. This has gone viral on social media. And it's being picked up by a lot of the sports stations down in the States, too. And here we are, CFL publicity, but not for the right reasons. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Kelly Moore, who's the sports director at our sister station, CJOB, in Winnipeg, where the offense happened, of course, last night. Uh, Kelly, thanks for the time. It's good to have you with us today.
3: Yes, the the offense, for sure.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Guilty as charged. Uh,
3: The only thing that would have made it worse, Bill, is if that had been Ryan Lankford's Touchdown return on the opening kickoff that actually didn't attract a flag, but can you imagine the hostility of that one had been called back?
0: Well, I mean, yeah, the fact that it was a visiting team that makes it's an egregious thing to begin with. But if it had been the home team, God forbid uh, something like that happened. Because let's face it, you and I both know. uh, I mean, I'm a Hamilton guy, born and raised, and I love the Tiger Cats. And you know, Hamilton's a great CFL city. I think the best, but the the most rabid CFL fans here in Winnipeg. We all know that.
3: Oh. they uh, they certainly are as good as any in the league. Uh, you know you'll have Saskatchewan claiming that they're the loudest and proudest, and, and certainly Hamilton will as well. But uh, I'll say it was loud at Investors Group Field last night. I think you saw that with a couple of Toronto penalties later in the game that were definitely. Uh, could be connected directly to the crowd.
0: i got to ask you, before we get into the to the refereeing and everything else, what is it about uh, Winnipeg and their fans? I mean, because everybody has an alumni association, and, you know, we love our Tiger Cats, and, of course, we have a Tiger Cat Alumni Association, and all the leagues, I you know the teams have chapters in it. But there's a there's a, a brotherhood there that, that, you know, we were in Winnipeg a couple of years ago for the Grey Cup, and we spent four or five days in town. And... Uh, it's almost the, the the alumni association. The Bomber alumni are almost treated like a deity. That the fans just don't forget, and they are always appreciative of these guys, and they really hold them up on a pedestal, don't they?
3: Well, that's Bill because they were the last ones to win a Grey Cup. <laughs> 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 no, uh, but, but part of that, you know, is is very true. And of course, it was a different time. It was a different era back then. But uh, those guys were were very successful. I mean you know, you go back to the uh, the early 80s when Winnipeg was a force, and then, you know, during the Cal Murphy years, uh, you know, and, and if you want to go back further to the Bud Grant era, you know, there uh, is, there there is so much history with this franchise. And one of the neat things that they're doing, Bill, I don't know uh, uh, if they were doing that when you were out here for Grey Cup, because I think they started just last year. They've begun with a ring of honor at Investors Group Field. And so for every home game, they honor a former bomber great, and it has just gone over so well. Jack Jacobs was the most recent one last night, who was the great uh, quarterback of the early 1950s. So, uh, I think I think it's part of it is this football team very, very much treats its history uh, with with kid gloves, if you will. With uh, the honor system. So I think that helps a lot as well.
0: Well, and the history, you mentioned about Bud Grant, for instance, and there was always a great rivalry back in those days between the Tiger Cats and the Bombers, because they used to meet in the Grey Cup on a pretty regular basis, and Jim Trimble versus Bud Grant, and then the Cal Murphy years. uh, There was something about Cal Murphy that just rubbed Hamilton fans and Tiger Cats the wrong way, and there were some great rivalries there. Uh, between those two teams, especially because in that era, too, if you recall, Kelly, uh, because of the the way things had gone with the league in Montreal, the, the Bombers were in the Eastern Conference off and on for a few of those years, which only made that rival more intense.
3: Yeah, it really did stoke it up uh, uh, for a while, for sure. It, it, and, but, you know, through all of that, Bill, it did not matter. Winnipeg could have been playing in a different league, and when you get to Labor Day, they'd still hate the Saskatchewan. Oh, Ruf-riders, yeah, yeah. That's what Rough Riders would hate them. It would be no different than the Argos and the Tiger Cats on Labor Day.
0: Yeah, those were the two great traditions, and uh, the the, the thing that they need to maintain about that. Uh, By the way, just to to wrap up with the alumni, then we'll get into the game. I'm I'm, I'm having coffee with one of your great alumni. Leo Esmonds, later on today, too. Uh, who who is Saint Leo? Every time I walk, I mention his name to anybody from Winnipeg. They, they, of course, he's a local guy. He's a hometown Winnipegger, but he's a, we're going to do coffee. He's living down here in the Hamilton area right now too. So I'll pass on his regards uh, when I see Leo later on today. So let, let's talk a little bit about the game. And and I know it, the it's easy, Kelly, when you see a thing like this happen last night to say, well, there go those referees again. Uh, and it doesn't matter what the sport is, but we'll focus on football right now. And I guess the the question that that I had when I saw that and watched the replay time and time again again this morning is: It better sometimes to have a non call than to have a bad call?
3: I would say so. Uh, you know, and and. I'll... I don't want to, uh, you know, scratch a, a, a scab for Hamilton Tiger Cat fans, but what about? Was it the 2015 Grey Cup against Calgary? I knew
0: you were going to bring that up.
3: Sorry, but, <laughs> you know, that's a similar type of circumstance uh, that had far more, far more reaching ramifications than, well, un- unless you're Karen Coldays. <laughs> last night. But uh, yeah, I I think, you know, it it's better to uh, to, to air. On the side of giving players the benefit of the doubt, and yes, it looks a lot different uh, at live speed and and I've never been on the field and have never refereed a football game, so i 'm not even going to try to uh, suggest that uh, you know you can relate to what those guys in the striped shirts are going through, but they are chosen because they are supposed to be uh, the best guys that are available to do the job and <laughs> it sure looked, even at live speed, Bill, like nothing untoward had been done. And I guess the thing that I always have difficulty with is, and an infraction is an infraction for sure, but when it's borderline and when it has absolutely no consequence on the play. I mean, Jackson was eight yards ahead of the Blue Bomber player who was kind of ran into more so than hit from behind. Mm-hmm. So why would you negate that play?
0: And and I understand because I've talked to officials about this, Kelly, and 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 they give you that answer that you just mentioned. They always say, "Look, that's our job, and my job is to call the game. It's not to wonder worry about the ramifications." Uh, but I saw yeah, we've all seen similar incidents. I, I can remember a game down here at Tim Horton Field a couple of years ago. Uh, and we, we sit on the, the press box side of the stadium, my wife and I, and the play was right down below us on that sideline. Uh, and we it was a 25 or 30-yard pass, a big second-down conversion, and everybody's up and screaming. And then we realize there's a flag on the far side of the field, and they called the receiver on that side of the field for an illegal block. And you figure he's 65 yards away from the play on the sideline on the other side of the field. Why would you throw that flag? And the official response is, well, because the guy made it. It was a penalty. It was an infraction. Really? I mean, are there times where do you just leave the whistle or the flag as it is in football and just leave it there and say, oh, forget about it. It doesn't matter?
3: Well, if it, if it has some kind of effect on the play, then I think you have to throw the flag. Like, I don't remember the play you're talking about, Bill. So, but you know, if it was Calera Slay who was at quarterback, and that was his first option, and then he had to go to option number two or three or something like that, you know, and and that impacted on his ability to make a play, then you know, then I think there's a legitimate cause to throw the flag. Sure, you're you're right. When uh, I just yes, you want to call it by the book. But sometimes we always talk about having a feel for the game, whether it's NHL officiating, whether it's umpiring, which is a little more black and white. But when it comes to football, you know, have a feel for the game. And, and I think there's, at least from what we saw last night, the directive that perhaps these officials are being given is to not have a feel for the game. That's that's the only thing I can think of.
0: Well, and it happens. And I know the the most blatant call that we as fans always go crazy about is holding, right? Because right. you know players and coaches will tell you, Kelly, and certainly the officials will say, "Hey, we could call it on every play." Seems sometimes they do, uh, but they seem to always do it at the most inappropriate times. And your point's well taken. If it's a flagrant call, you know, if a guy's you know got a beeline for the quarterback and somebody trips him or pulls him down, sure, throw the flag. But on a, a, a tough play like that, or a running play, if it's not flagrant, why, why throw the flag that play and not the play before?
3: Yeah, it, it, it does take away from the credibility of the league, I think, when, you, when, when the conversations are about this, Bill, rather than what a fantastic football game it was, you know, how, how hard Andrew Harris ran to get his 81 yards, or Justin Medlock booting one from the stratosphere, uh, you know, th- those are the things that we should be focusing on, but we're not. And and so, in essence, I think that hurts the league.
0: Well, and that's the thing I feel badly about, too, because it was a good football game. I mean, I, I one of the reasons we love CFL football is because of that level of excitement. And that game, you're right, Kelly, it had it all. You know, great run backs, super defensive plays. Uh, you know, it was kind of back and forth, and you, you love, as a fan, to see a game like that. But we're talking about this one play. We're not talking about the rest of it, and I think it really hurts the 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 reputation of the league, and and certainly the officiating when when that seems to be the focus.
3: Right, and then uh, the trickle down effect on that. I think to a certain degree, Bill. I don't know that it would impact entirely, but there has to be some question that in the players' minds. Well, what can I do, and what can't I do? Yeah. Can I can I block, or or should I not block at all, and, and risk getting a flag because? I know there are many conversations we have on our post Game Show, or, or the, the conversation the day after with Mike O'Shea, and uh, you know he'll he'll just say, "Well, you know, we we had a meeting with the player, but uh, you know we uh, we understand his, his point of view." So that's his way of avoiding a fine and saying that the flag was not warranted. But uh, so there, there are I think there are too many instances of that happening. Now again. Uh, I don't know that there are as many mistakes made officially by the officials as there are by players in a game. But there shouldn't be that many critical situations in a football game this early in the season. I mean, for goodness sakes, we had the first two weeks where the video review was under question uh, for some rather uh, eye-opening calls. And it's not a great way to start, that's for sure. I mean, we're, what, four weeks into the season.
0: Yeah, and it's it's not a pivotal game, but I mean, what had this been? What if it? And they're saying, well, so this lady didn't win a million bucks. Well, so I feel very badly for her too. But what if it? What if that had been like the last regular season game? What if? What if the Argos needed to win that game to qualify for the playoffs, and and a call like that changes the outcome of the game? And and your point about the Grey Cup, as much as it hurts to bring it up again, Kelly. Yeah. Uh, you know that changed the game. I mean, the cats probably could have won the Grey Cup that day, except for that bad call. And the argument at that time was, oh yeah, it, it probably was an illegal block, but it was about eight ten yards behind the play. Uh, the guy Banks was already well on his way to the end zone with it. So, yeah, I know, I know the referees don't have time to assess any of that stuff, but you got to wonder sometimes if it's better to just leave the flag in the pocket.
3: Well, there should be enough sets of eyes on the field that a guy could come up to his colleague and say, you know what. You, you should pick up the flag. I don't think we want to call this one. And, you know, what made it worse for the Argos, Bill, is they had two opportunities back-to-back to still score a touchdown. You know, Armadi Edwards uh, uh, was uh, dislodged from the ball by Brandon Alexander, the first one, but Brandon Whitaker is all alone and and just, you know, dropped it like a brick. So, you know, instead of getting a touchdown, which, you know, the Argos – really deserve, they wind up having to settle for a field goal. So that just added to their woes on that play.
0: It's it's unfortunate, and, and by the way, we're not suggesting that referees just you know, hey, let's just, if going to determine uh, the the outcome of the game or hey, the, you know, let the home crowd call that. That's not it at all. It's just that I think there's, there's time and place sometimes, and I know they'll tell you technically it's not a judgment call, but I think oftentimes they do have that, that opportunity to say, okay, am I going to call this or am I not? Because it's a violent game. I mean, you were just talking about Coach O'Shea there. I mean, you know, Mike played the game hard. They all got it, and they do now. It's, a, it's, a, it's not a, a contact sport. It's a collision sport. And you could call a penalty on almost every play, which always begs the question, well, why'd you call this one then? And, and I think that's what everybody was asking last night.
3: You know, and, and what kind of total would Martise Jackson have had you know, for total uh, yards if that hadn't been called back? Now, he lost 25 yards on that. Uh, but he just ran back a punt earlier in the game for a touchdown, and then you know we would have had that. Uh, you know, for sure, I still think he's going to be one of the top three performers of the week with the uh, effort that he put in. Uh, but uh, you know, it, it has to be entirely deflating to a young guy like that as well. So there, there are all sorts of ripple effects of of calls like that. But it's amazing, Bill, that the. The one that seemed to resonate the most was for the lady who missed out on the million dollars uh, through the, uh, as you mentioned, the Safeway Sobeys promotion. And I actually gave uh, Promotivate a call this morning just to see if they had been chatting at all about, you know, what can we do maybe to help make this a little bit right? And uh, I was, uh, well, take down your name and phone number and somebody will perhaps get back to you on that.
0: Well, she did win something, didn't she? She, uh, she had a sound system or something, didn't she?
3: Right, yeah. She won a $25,000 sound system, so she doesn't go away entirely empty-handed. But, Bill, if you had a choice between a $25,000 <laughs> sound system and a million dollars, I think I know which way you're going to go. Yeah,
0: I know. It's, that's a no-brainer. You know, it's interesting. I don't know. Uh, Bob Irving, of course, the, the legendary play-by-play guy Colin Bomber's game. I don't know if Bob mentioned this during the broadcast last night. But when I was looking into this this morning, I was talking to a guy who knows a little bit about officiating, and he said, you know, that was a challengeable call. And I said, no, I didn't. I don't think they brought it up on the broadcast either, on the telecast. They said they changed the rule after that 2014 Grey Cup, and uh, you can challenge it. Now, Mark Tressman hasn't been in the league for a few years. Maybe he didn't know that, but he probably should have thrown a challenge flag.
3: Well, because it's a touchdown, it's automatically reviewed by the uh, the command center, Bill, so I don't know that that is challengeable, to tell you the truth, uh, because all touchdowns are reviewed yeah. after the command center has had a chance to put eyes on it, uh, which, you know, they have to be dragged into the conversation as well. Uh, that's why I don't believe Mark, let's face it, Mark Trestman, nothing is going to get by him. He is an absolutely fabulous coach.
0: Oh, absolutely, yeah.
3: Yeah. I, I I don't want to say 100%, but I would say with fairly good certainty uh, that because it's reviewable as a touchdown, that it's not challengeable.
0: Well, I'm sure that after all was said and done, O'Shea was happy to take the two points, though, right?
3: Oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> you know, and, 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 I mean, they had some good fortune go their way, but I've always been a big believer, Bill, and you've watched football for years as well, that teams manufacture – their own good luck yeah and, and both of these teams played hard but at the end of the day I, I'm you know Mark Trussman's not going to be happy about some of the calls that were made but at the end of the day he's going to also put the onus on his players how many trips did they take into the red zone and have to come away with the Liram Hiralahu field goal so part of that onus is on the Toronto Argonauts in that respect in that they did not take advantage of the opportunities they had
0: Hashtag let the guys play. We'll finish it off on that. And, Kelly, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Great talking with you again.
1: You bet, Bill. Anytime. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon
3: on AM 900 CHML.